Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia. I'm your host, Derek Lemons, Director of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology and Associate Professor of Religion. You're listening to Season 1, which is dedicated to the topic of rapid religious change. Today, Deborah Mason, Maria Lynn Rios, John Blake, and Audrey Galax share their thoughts on rapid religious change from the perspective of journalist and public relations specialist. My name is Deborah Mason. I'm a professor emerita of the Missouri School of Journalism and um, a longtime director of Religion News Association and its foundation and a publisher of Religion News Service. Um, So I'm really excited about these folks. And they had to slog through, uh, two of the three had to slog through Atlanta traffic to get here. Um, So I'm going to start at the far end. Um, Maria Lenrios, she's actually a little closer to home, and she's associate dean at the Grady School. Is it the Grady School of Journalism? Grady College. Grady College. Mm-hmm. Grady College of Journalism. Uh, and uh, I actually knew uh, Maria when she was a colleague of mine at the Missouri School of Journalism. So um, Dr. Lenrios teaches public relations and cross-cultural journalism in uh, just... A few months ago, actually, they released the second edition of a textbook that she co-authored called Cross-Cultural Journalism, Communicating Strategically About Diversity. And um, Maria taught literally thousands of students cross-cultural journalism, including uh, segments on religion. Um, and um, her research focuses on inequalities uh, in public relations and health communication. And she has earned more than nine top paper awards at the professional academic conferences in public relations, health, health, health and science communication, mass comm, and um, other subgenres of uh, mass communication and health research. She has collaborated on interdisciplinary work and has been on a variety of grants, and uh, including. Um, at uh, Washington University and an NIH Center of Excellence in Cancer Communication Research. And I'm just really um, pleased to have her here. She's just a really fine, uh, high-caliber high scholar. And uh, thank you for being here. John Blake is a senior writer and producer at CNN.com. He writes about race, religion, and politics. He uh, is a really talented writer. I first... Uh, knew of him when he was working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, where he worked for 17 years, and one of the things that he wrote about was uh, religion. Were you ever full-time on religion there? Yeah. Okay, I thought so, with Gail? Yes. Yeah, okay, with Gail White, who was another, as a long-time religion writer there. Um, His work has been honored by SPJ, or the Society of Professional Journalists, the Associated Press, the American Academy of Religion, the Religion Communicator, Communicators Council, uh, and he is um, the author of the book Children of the Movement, which is a book about the children of the um, leaders of the civil rights movement. Um, 
and um, we're just really grateful to have him here. Um, and then we have Audrey Galix, and she is a producer and program content manager for the AIB Network. That is an Atlanta-based cable channel and online platform. Her work encompasses documentaries and current events, interfaith-focused interview programs. She created the Abandoned Mattress Project photojournalism initiative. I'm really curious about that, um, to draw attention to the homelessness and environmental issues and serves on the board of Faith Alliance of Metro Atlanta, Essential Theater, Initiative for Affordable Housing, and the Jewish Community Relations Council of Atlanta. She has a Master's of Science in Journalism from Northwestern. So do I. Right. When were you there? I was there oh, probably way before you. Anyway, <laughs> and, uh, and a BEA in International Relations uh, Middle Eastern Studies from American University in Washington, D.C. So um, I'm really grateful for you fo folks, and we're going to just dive right in. So, um, so I wonder if, um, if you can all talk about a story or a public relations uh, event or maybe even a teaching um, experience in your case, uh, Maria, uh, that involved a religion angle and um, that you had to do on a really tight deadline and the challenges you had in, in sourcing it. There, um, the, the motive behind this question is that there are a lot of complaints about how religion is covered in the mainstream media uh, and, um, and time uh, is a really... It, we battle with time all the time and never more than now. So I just wonder if um, whoever wants to go first, if you want to talk about, um, talk about uh, the sourcing of uh, religion on a tight deadline. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, I had this uh, issue. Um, there was a breaking story you probably heard about Christianity Today mm -hmm. magazine. Uh, they wrote an editorial uh, calling for Trump to resign. And... Um, I remember the challenges of writing that story on deadline. Um, was the, the news broke, I think I first saw it on Twitter, it was kind of late in the day. Mm -hmm. And um, I told my editor we should do this story. And the big challenge I find now compared to say years ago when you knew me at the AJC when I worked at a newspaper, yeah. is that I find that what's happening in a lot of people's personal lives is kind of happening in the media, meaning I don't know if you can relate to this, but I remember maybe about three or four years ago, I like to take my Facebook page. I had conservative and progressive and independent people coming to my page, and we would all kind of talk about politics of what was happening. But lately, it seems like in the past year or two, all the conservatives have fled. Hmm, interesting. It's like they don't, there's no even, no desire for dialogue. Hmm. And what I'm finding as a religion, when I write about religion now, it is harder for me to get people who would be called conservative, to just to get them on the line, to get them to talk, because I'm with CNN. I didn't have that problem before. Mm -hmm. But when that story broke a couple of weeks ago, I said, God, I have to get an evangelical. And I'm like, well, who's gonna, you know, if I call up and say, I'm from CNN, it's like Communist News Network. Mm -hmm. I mean, they get, mm -hmm. you know, the, mm -hmm. and that was a big challenge, but fortunately, the week before, I just happened to have lunch with a um, breakfast with uh, Jim Walls. Mm. He just happened to come into Atlanta. He's the lead of Sojourners, and he he loves to talk. And I had he gave me his card, and I just called him, and he gave me a, a great mm -hmm. quote, and it deepened the story. 
but that's a big challenge mm. now when I call people that who mm. might not like CNN, like, will they actually talk to me? I never had to worry about that before because the people love to talk to the media. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's fascinating. This is Audrey Galix from the AIB Network. I, I never really work on a tight, tight deadline, mm -hmm. but you know, one of the things I was thinking, John, as, as you were talking, is some of the pieces that we do are kind of, um, shall we say, softball kinds of pieces in order to develop relationships with people like, let's say, uh, Reverend Bryant White of um, Johnson Ferry Road Baptist Church, who may have been perhaps one of the people you would talk to about that subject. I mean, I do stories, everything from, don't laugh, clergy couture to, uh, <laughs> I kid you not, it's a thing, uh, to uh, uh, comparing water rituals across different faith traditions, um, let's see, uh, head coverings, mm. uh, sacred words, or getting a panel of people together uh, to talk about women in scripture. And so in a way, I developed these relationships that then, and I, I certainly, uh, yeah, I suspect you do as well, then can lead if there's a difficult topic to speak with. Although I did see somebody from a university here earlier who's been trying to track me down. But, <laughs> That's funny. He's not in the room now. Uh, that perhaps make it easier to connect with people when there might be something like this. But certainly I'm not with Communist News Network, although I was a thousand years ago and didn't mm -hmm. put that in my bio. Mm -hmm. But I suspect, you know, that might have something to do with it, unfortunately. Um, I was going to say, from a public relations perspective, um, we try not to do anything very quickly that's not strategically <laughs> planned, yeah. correct? Yeah. correct. True. Um, but the things that do come up is when you have a crisis, right? And they call the public relations person and they're like, oh no, someone said the wrong thing or um, somebody went and took a photo and it's the wrong image or we created a marketing plan and it's insensitive to a particular religion. And those are, in public relations, the kinds of situations, or it could relate to politics and campaigning, right? And um, someone says something wrong. So, I mean, there really isn't a whole lot of training, I would say, in public relations education on religion. <laughs> and so that is one of the areas where, you know, it would also take a while to give a response, I think. And I think what we do is we train people how to respond when they've made a mistake <laughs> that's related to a religion and how to apologize and correct the error that you made. Mm -hmm. But if you're not aware about religion, you can make marketing mistakes, putting the wrong image on a tennis shoe, right? Mm. And then all of a sudden, you have to pull that product and that's costing your company millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So not knowing about the images that you use is a big problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Nike did that. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> Nike did that. Um, so um, I, I wanna kind of go a little more into this kind of this moment in time that we're at. Um, and I, I wonder um, if, you know, I mean, how is it going to get better? <laughs> I mean, what what is it? Is it um, is it 
is it the politics of the time? And if we have a change in leadership, then the the then things will change. Or um, have you? Do you think CNN, for instance, has lost those audiences to Breitbart or to Newsmax or other entities or World Magazine? Where? Um, you know, this is, uh, it's a huge issue, not just for CNN, it's a huge issue for all mainstream news markets. And in some cases, it's become dangerous, right? I mean, um, you've had colleagues, you know, I, I wonder if you can talk, if, 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 and I don't know, maybe, um, I don't know if any, I, I haven't ever personally been in, felt in danger, um, but I just wonder if you could talk about just the difference in tone that journalists are facing these days. I don't know if you remember this, but a couple months ago, there was a guy uh, sending, mailing pipe bombs mm. to yeah. people at CNN. So I remember when that happened. And um, my first job out of uh, college when I was a journalist, I covered uh, gangs in South Central. Oh. And um, that was quite an experience. And I remember um, doing that, going to South Central and you know, talking to Crips and Bloods and all that. But it was exciting to me because I was young and stupid, you know. But I never thought I would really experience that feeling again. And when that guy started mailing pipe bombs, and I'm in the newsroom, I thought, wow, this is a weird thing to think that this kind of violence could happen. And I don't know if you've ever been to the CNN Center, but it's like a big, there's a big food court, and there's security everywhere. So when I'm there, I'm very aware that there are guards, armed guards, protecting journalists and I've heard people say you know that I, I think about this sometimes what if somebody just came in there just shooting up people you know because we're part of the lamestream media I've never had to really think that way before mm -hmm. but now I'm thinking that way and to go to your question about um, if things are gonna get better I mean as far as you're talking about the country well, I'm talking about the relationship um, with the news and in terms of, um, you know, being able to have broad, broadly diverse uh, sources again more, more easily, going back to the way, I guess, the way it used to be. <laughs> I find it difficult to be optimistic about that because mm. people have kind of, uh, what I've seen is that they've kind of uh, withdrawn into these kind of like intellectual cul-de-sacs. You only consume the news that you agree with. You only talk to the people or befriend the people on social media you agree with. So like when I worked in newspapers, again, it's like I talked to people who were different, I could reach them, but I don't find that type of interaction. I used to have a lot of sources that were conservative people. We would talk and we would get along and um, some of them kind of literally cursed me out. I can't wow. talk to them anymore. Wow. And um, I, I just think, what's happening in the media is mirroring what's happening in the country. Mm -hmm. And um, it, you didn't ask this question, but I do wonder sometimes if it's gonna get better, like in the country, mm -hmm. like say if we have new political leadership, would that make a difference? Um, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I, I really, sometimes I think um, we underestimate how traumatizing it is for people to go from a country that was really built on white supremacy mm -hmm. to a country that's becoming majority, you know, brown, mm -hmm. black, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a tremendous shift. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the future of this country is gonna be people trying to deal with that shift. Mm -hmm. And I think it's gonna be very difficult. Mm -hmm.
Uh, forgive me, I, I did mean to try and reach yeah, for that. Yeah. But I, I was also thinking, John, because you and I are also in Atlanta together, maybe we could somehow work together in terms of sourcing, et cetera. And maybe that's part of the answer is journalists maybe reaching across uh, their uh, media, so to speak, and uh, working together to either develop sources or, or stories. Uh, I would like to be hopeful about the future of journalism, uh, by the way, in our country. Uh, my husband, who's also in, um, in the business, we say we failed as parents because one of our children is a newspaper reporter, <laughs> actually covering 2020. And I must tell you, she had a very interesting experience, and it's a little bit off topic, so forgive me, but she was covering a rally uh, where uh, the president was speaking, that she's based in Columbia, South Carolina, and she actually did witness a very docile, friendly crowd turn on the journalists once he started speaking. And uh, as an overprotective mother, I must say, I, I don't want to say I have the White House phone number on speed dial, but I did call and leave an, uh, an email as well as a voicemail saying that I would hold this individual personally responsible should anything happen to my journalist child. So, and I, and I, I share that by, by way of saying, I think we, you know, I literally feel in some ways we all have skin in the game to uh, stay at the table, continue to reach out to sources, even those who may say disparaging things about the news media, if no other reason to have than perhaps those, that email traffic saying that we tried, you weren't there for us. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, let me show you public who, you know, holds us in, in such disdain. And I, I, yeah, I, well, go ahead. And I, I just wanted to know, too, how you train students. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I was going to go in a different direction. Go, go for it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I, I was just going to add from a public relations yes. perspective. Yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the big trends um, in public relations has been over the last decade this move towards in communicating for an organization mm. your corporate social responsibility from the business side mm. and so there has been a talk about organizational values and mm. what do you represent as an organization and you know if you think of businesses and companies and how they communicate there's so many products on the market today that one of the ways that companies have tried to distinguish themselves is through this corporate social responsibility we care about the environment we care about your health we care about this we care about that so a lot of you know there's been a lot of talk about pink washing right the idea that you know you buy this for cancer and cancer is cured and people being very cynical of that approach mm -hmm. right um so now the new discussion it's not corporate social responsibility there's so much skepticism like what are mm. you really doing i mean you're still selling plastic bottles right and so the move has been to talk about the idea of corporate purpose and this has to do with the idea of living your values as a company. And we see some companies do that when, you know, you look at Chick-fil-A. They're not open on Sundays, right? They're living and working their values. You have Hobby Lobby, right? And their employees have certain health benefits and don't have other health benefits because they're living their corporate values. And we're seeing young people wanting to work places that represent their corporate or their personal values that are represented by the place where they work. Mm -hmm. We're seeing from public relations, public relations does 
external communication, but we also do internal communication within an organization. And we're seeing these same difficulties in employee conversations within companies. So when you send internal communications out to your employees, and not just nationally, but internationally, sometimes the question is, the organization values that you've adopted. How does that fit with those of your employees? And we're finding that this is a big issue in public relations that we're trying to address is how do we communicate when some of our employees have different values than other employees? Our employees in California versus our employees in Kansas versus our employees in Michigan, Idaho, New York. And it's becoming very difficult for organizations and companies, especially large ones, to try to communicate in ways that fit the values of all of their employees and take on these issues. Because if you take on climate change, right, that's become a political issue. Immigration and visas, which you may need to ramp up your tech companies or your healthcare workers, mm -hmm. right? These have become issues in how we communicate. I think it's it's interesting from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder, we were talking earlier um, and about this issue of religious literacy, and um, I just wonder, uh, and, and the lack thereof, and how we have uh, a, a growingly, growing, increasingly religiously illiterate uh, population, and how that uh, maybe exacerbates uh, and makes our job as uh, media communi uh, communicators uh, more difficult. Um, and I wonder what role, because this is a panel at um, a regional conference of AAR, SBL, uh, I just wonder what role scholars, wh what do you see scholars playing in that role of, uh, of helping uh, news professionals and public relations professionals um, improve the religious literacy of the places where we work and the students we're preparing for media outlets. Yeah. Well, I hope the scholars in the room like my response because we need you. Uh, we need you to be responsive. We need you to perhaps help provide rich detail in terms of not just the um, tenets of a faith, but the lived religion, its evolution, its history, its scripture. Uh, I do a couple times a year, a, a, let's say a six-part series exploring, exploring Buddhism, exploring Taoism, et cetera, et cetera. And I've got to say, we have some uh, a wonderful a source in Atlanta who wrote the book, Taoism uh, for Dummies mm -hmm. or whatever. I love them, but when you show up for an interview, I'm going to tell you, scholars, don't wear shorts, okay? <laughs> I don't know, it, it could be the summer, that's okay, but you know, from the waist up, if you're dealing with television, right? No, but uh, I think it's important that you be able, as, even as a scholar, to be able to speak to people on um, a level that is uh, readily understood by perhaps people who do not have a PhD. I'll never forget, I still claim, I, I, I mean it, I'll own this, I do not know what the word hermeneutics mean. <laughs> 
means to this day. And maybe it's my brain. I just can't. But so you have to be able to, just like we uh, need to be able to uh, translate our jar jargon from the news business, uh, so too do uh, scholars as well. I think it's really critical that we work together. I'll never forget a couple of years ago when I was working on a series on the Wiccan tradition and uh, the Atlanta AIB network started 50 years ago as Atlanta interfaith broadcasters. So that is sort of part of our DNA, even though we have we rebranded a few short <laughs> years ago when we discovered that religion doesn't really sell. Okay, and that people uh, express their spirituality not just by being nuns, but as you know, you know, gardening or you know, dancing, and rock and roll, it's, et cetera. It's great. I'm not. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that the AIB network recognized that, and so now our programming is well beyond uh, worship services and sermons, and uh, it's cooking. It's mind, body, spirit. That seems to kind of be a thing, whether you're an insurance company or a formerly interfaith broadcaster. Be that as it may, we're a nonprofit and we have a board of directors. So I, uh, at our meeting where we were uh, sharing what our news budget for the coming year was going to be, said our exploring faith this year is going to be exploring, you know, paganism, you know, Wicca. And one of our board members said, is that the dark arts or something like that? It's like, okay, now we definitely, you know, make, need to make sure we do these kinds of, uh, of things. Uh, and move certainly beyond you know, the major monotheistic uh, faith traditions to hopefully dispel some misunderstanding. One of the series I wish we still had, and this was one where we included scholars, was uh, one called One-on-One, -on -One, where you'd get like a scholar or a clergy or faith leader from like the Sikh tradition interviewing somebody from, like a, a, a Jewish a rabbi, et cetera, and then they didn't interview each other about the lived experience of their faith. It was really, it, it was kind of like a story ish kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that that's perhaps what we need to be able to do is talk about, I, and I, I will admit, last year I did a, a series on uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I'm, I'm going to confess, I probably, you know, came in with some unexamined uh, uh, assumptions about the community, and I've, I've come away after that uh, with uh, a greater understanding and also a thirst to learn more and to engage in conversation. And I think that's uh, a, a place where scholars can certainly help. Um, I have found that um, the challenge of people not having the, the re religious literacy can also be an opportunity mm. because people still, I have learned, um, still have a spiritual hunger. Mm. They want to mm. learn about mm. things. And I have found that when I've written stories in a really accessible way, people who, who won't, wouldn't call themselves normally religious uh, will find it interesting. Um, for example, uh, how can I say, uh, I did a story once about a, a, a form of preaching in a black church called hooping. And um, I don't know if we have too many people who even knows what that is, but I grew up in a black church, and it's a style of preaching that's very uh, flamboyant, show off, efficient, and all that. We had video, but people love that story because I think sometimes people like uh, feel like they're learning something, like they're being taken into a strange new world, and they can learn about things. Uh, sometimes you can. Um, I found that. Uh, there are other stories that bring people in if you can link it to politics. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple months ago, I convinced my editors uh, there was this uh, big Christian contemporary uh, 
artist named Torin Wells who came to Atlanta mm -hmm. and I used to write about Christian contemporary music mm -hmm. and I told my editor, I said, you know, we should do something on this because um, I wonder what these people say about Trump. Do they feel mm -hmm. any urge to speak out because Christian contemporary artists have long been criticized for only singing about Jesus, you don't think about anything else. Mm -hmm. So when Torin Wells came to Atlanta, I wrote this story and I, and I asked him and other artists, you know, you, you, you talk about justice, you talk about love, do you feel any urge in the Trump era to talk more, to be more vocal? And that story turned out to be one of the most popular stories I, I did because I think people, even if you don't call yourself religious, you wonder if you're a Christian artist, should you say something about children who are being put in cages? You know, should you say about how immigrants are being treated? Should you, if you ask those kind of questions that way, even people who wouldn't even call themselves religious or go to church, they will get involved. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick just a second on this because um, one of the things that has happened um, in the relationship between journalists and scholars is that uh, some scholars have really become very frustrated with journalists and with the lack of religious literacy among most journalists. Even though there are people like John and, and um, Audrey who are. Um, you know, experts in the topic, uh, and there are, you know, dozens of those people across the country, most religion coverage is being done by people who aren't specialists, and they ask stupid questions, <laughs> and, um, and there was a, uh, those of you who are in AAR and know who Robert Orsi is, um, you know, he, former president of AAR, and he wrote a, a column once that said, you know, I'm done, I'm not talking to journalists, we shouldn't talk to journalists anymore, scholars shouldn't talk to journalists, and, um, this has been a real tension. It, there's a real tension between journalists and scholars right now, and I, I just wonder if um, if you want to talk about that, or if anybody out there who's uh, a scholar and had been approached by a journalist and had a bad experience, if you want to talk talk about your experiences. Well, I just like to jump in. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the Go expression on Go my face. It, please. <laughs> if a journalist asks a stupid question, can you imagine what someone who isn't even in, in journalism might be asking? Again, like John said, ignorance is perhaps just like a stupid question, is an opportunity to teach people. I mean, maybe that's what scholars need to do is just to admit that we, you know, we all have a responsibility to educate not just our students whose parents or whoever are paying, but the greater community, like a community scholar, so to speak. And is there a lot of ignorance? Uh, there's a lot of ignorance even amongst, with someone who has lived in a particular faith, been raised, may not know all the scholarship around it. You know, you just know that you had to prep for your bar mitzvah, you know, or what it, whatever it was, and then maybe never show up in, in synagogue again. Um, and I guess now I'm kind of putting also my interfaith uh, hat on uh, as a member of the Board of Faith Alliance of Metro Atlanta. E even we uh, have a lot to learn about each other. Uh, and, you know, for example, in the, uh, in the Atlanta community, predominantly Sunni Muslim people, for example, have been members of the board of, of FAMA. Well, we didn't even really know about the Ismaili community, for example, or some of the other uh, you know, Muslim communities in Atlanta. So we have a, a lot to learn, even those who are immersed in it. And I do thank you for calling me an expert, although <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. That's going on my bio. But um, I, I would hope that uh, those in, in the scholarly world would perhaps even, you know, 
reach out to journalists and say, hey, let's do lunch or coffee or I'm coming out with a new book. I think it's Mark Ellingston, actually, who was sitting here earlier, who's, who's very good. He, he asked oh, one of the questions. Oh, yeah. He's done that for me. And I, you know, like I said, I'm feeling guilty that I haven't reached back. But I do think it's a, it's a two-way street and email is very, very easy. So um, uh, if scholars also are wanting to, you know, I don't know, maybe get that next book publishing deal or something, it might be, you know, not a bad idea to be quoted in, in some media outlet or another. I want to get to that point of um, diversity that you raised, John, and um, uh, Maria, you're a Latina woman, um, and uh, I wonder if, you know, one of the problems with religion specifically is that uh, most, well, the largest single Christian uh, group, for instance, has only uh, male uh, leadership, um, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, that's true of um, uh, mostly, uh, you know, within Islam, within um, Orthodox Jewry. Uh, many, <clears throat> many, many uh, denominations are the institutional structures are headed by men. Um, in the United States, uh, when you think about the leaders who are, uh, religious leaders who are quoted most often, they tend to be white. Um, so how can journalists get around that issue of the leadership that might not necessarily be reflective of, of the world, um, of a, a black, brown, yellow world? I mean, my, my perspective is going to be from a public relations yeah, perspective. And usually, you know, organizations are interested in audiences, not in leaders. So, so I mean, they're interested in the congregations and the groups of people mm -hmm. in the churches. Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of organizations going to churches for political support, right? Um, you see them going to churches to try to do health, you know, get, you know, get your colorectal cancer screening, right? Um, that's where they connect with leadership a lot of times in the churches um, is for, you know, health campaigns, politics, things like that. And, and so, you know, they're going after a wider audience. But, I mean, it does raise questions about um, who, who to speak to, right, and who gets to speak. Right. And I think that raises issues about equality. Um, and I think that goes back to the question that we had before about health policy, right, is like, you know, if, if a group of people have a belief, where does that leave people that don't have power at the table? And, you know, in businesses and organizations, you know, if you do have a group that feels like, you know, a man can't have a business meeting alone with a woman, right, or if women can't be involved in certain outings, then that does not allow for women to be equally participants in a business or an organization. And that raises questions too, right? So, I mean, I think there are lots of different angles from an internal employee perspective of how religion is part of an organization and they may have traditions that may not um, be seen by everyone as cultivating equality. 
I just think that we journalists got to stop being lazy and, you know, get beyond the official, you know, archdiocese website and PR people. And with social media, I mean, you can always find, like if we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church, you know, a group of nuns who are pissed off or what have you. And I, I just think we need to, you know, perhaps widen our own tents of, um, of sources and, and resources and get out in the community perhaps more as well. Um, and I think it was much harder, you know, and, you know, back in the day, maybe when I started out in the 80s, you know, in journalism, because, it, you know, you just had your Rolodex or the yellow pages or what have you. But now with, with social media, it's so much easier. Thanks for listening. For the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia, I'm Derek Lemons. This panel convened at the 2020 Southeastern Regional Meeting of the American Academy of Religion. Thank you to Lily Baldwin, who edited this podcast, and to the John Templeton Foundation for funding the work of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology.